This is a recording of a sermon from Light Church in San Diego, California. For more information, please visit lightsandiego.com. Like I said, my name is Benji, and if we haven't gotten a chance to meet yet, I would love uh, to just welcome you. We're glad that you guys are here. Uh, This is uh, hopefully a place where you can come and feel welcomed and known, and we get to discover uh, what this means to know Jesus and to follow Jesus together. And tell you what, before we dive in, let me just pray, uh, and then we'll get started. Father, we thank you so much for tonight. We thank you for who you are. Uh, Lord, thank you for the story that you've told and are telling. God, we ask that tonight you would make clear to us uh, who you are, Lord Jesus, and then who we are in the midst of the story that you're telling. Lord, I ask that you would continue to open up our hearts, Lord Jesus, anything that would uh, distract or anything that's just kind of weighing on us, Lord, we just ask that you'd uh, allow us just to put that aside for a moment and let you speak to us. Um, God, I gladly get out of the way, um, Lord, that you would be the one who speaks to our hearts tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, it is uh, fun to get to be here each week because we get to continue a conversation that we began January 7th. We are in the middle of a series called The Narrative of Light. And what we decided to do to, to start the, uh, this new church, to start Light Church is to talk about this theme that we see throughout Scripture of light. We see in the very first verses of the Bible and the very last verses of the Bible, we see it as the way that Jesus introduces himself to the story in in John. Uh, And and so we see this as a thematic uh, kind of expression throughout all of Scripture. And and we really see this as not just a, a single theme in Scripture, but really ties in together the whole narrative of Scripture itself. And... uh. We would love to spend uh, months and years going through every story, every verse of the Bible, and, and we hope that you guys get to do that through different things like our Lectio Divina Journal and different Bible apps that we have available for you. But for the sake um, of just starting this church, for the sake of time, we decided that we would take the different elements of story and break them down and figure out where do those fit in the story of God. And so the first, we talked about character, and we talked about how the main character of the story is God and how we play these supporting roles in the story. The second week, we talked about setting and kind of this thing that we often gets overlooked in the story, but how crucial it is that when God starts his story, he doesn't start it um, with anger, with chaos, with disorder, but rather he starts it with what Jewish people call shalom, everything in its right order. It starts with paradise. And that tells us so much about the story that God is telling, not just of where we were, but where it's headed as well. Uh, Last week was a really crucial part of understanding the story of God because we talked about foreshadowing, which takes place in Genesis chapter 3, which is kind of almost like a a mini version of the whole story of God. It talks about God's love for humanity, humanity's choice to step away from God's best for them by choosing to take a fruit and, and, and eat that against God's will, and how that welcomed sin into the story And that as sin entered in the story, so did shame. That when we sin, automatically we become hiders. But we also found out in this foreshadowing story that God became a pursuer. And not only does he chase down Adam and Eve, 
um, and, and not discipline them and give them death immediately, but rather sacrifices an animal so that they could be covered in their shame. And, and all this is a picture pointing forward to the rest of Scripture. But tonight I have to tell you, we have quite a job to do because tonight we're talking about conflict. Uh, and so the text for tonight is the entire Old Testament. So... Uh, my brain has hurt so much this week because uh, we can't talk about conflict without talking about the whole of the Old Testament because what this lays out, what the, and, and if you don't know, if you're new to the Bible, it's really broken up into these two movements. The Old Testament, which is what the Jewish people consider their Bible or their Tanakh, uh, and then there is the New Testament where Jesus enters the story, and we believe that Jesus is what the Jewish people called the Messiah, or this promised one that would come. But the Old Testament is this narrative that goes on and on and on, and it takes place over hundreds of years, different cultures, different people, different stories, but it, it, it actually strangely tells the same story on repeat again and again and again and again. That's what we're going to be talking about tonight, is how do we understand what this conflict is, and why is it important to understand conflict? And the reason it's important to understand what the conflict is, if we don't have a clear and accurate view of the conflict, we cannot have a clear and accurate view of the rescue. This is huge. If we don't have a vivid understanding of what's broken, then we really don't know what God is trying to fix. And a lot of times people maybe shy away from the Old Testament because it, it, sometimes it's, it's hard to digest. It's, it's really hard to, to read through some of these stories. And some of them, quite frankly, are very confusing. And I, I don't even know where to put them. But what I do know is this, is the more I dive into the Old Testament, the more I dive into the story of Israel, which is the Old Testament, the more it brings clarity to what the conflict of humanity is. And the more I understand what, what this brokenness that we have in humanity is, the more I become thankful for what Jesus did, which will come in the next couple weeks. I don't want to get ahead of myself. But tonight, we have to get this view, view of conflict. And believe me, it's not going to be like doom and gloom. You're not going to leave here depressed. Because even in the midst of conflict, God is present and redemptive throughout all of it. But we have to understand what the conflict is. And I couldn't think of a better way to to illustrate how important it is to know what the conflict is than when I first got married. And when you first get married, you are introduced not only to the, this person, but you all of a sudden are their roommate. And so I knew Jen. We had been friends for a couple years, and we had dated for a year. But when I became her roommate, I got to know a, a whole different side of her, and I was introduced to um, a pretty major conflict that happened in our marriage, um, not between us, but something that happened to us that shook me pretty bad. And so we're newly married, and um, I'm young. I'm 20 years old when we got married, right? I'm, I'm a baby. And um, I don't think I'm a baby, right? I think I'm like the man. But the reality is I'm just learning how to shave. And, um, and so I can't even buy a champagne on my honeymoon. True story. And, and so I'm, I'm this 20, 21-year-old kid who is now married, pretending to be a man, and Jen wakes me up in the middle of the night, and she stirs me, and she says, Benji, someone's in our house. And all of a sudden, the fear grips me, and I mean, like, talk about conflict. All of a sudden, I'm like, that's my job. Like, I'm the answer to this conflict. Me. I mean, I know what you're thinking. Like, God has blessed me, right, with this natural physique that would just intimidate any intruder, this is not a joke, um, but, 
I was even smaller when we first got married. And, and so all of a sudden, I'm like, so I wake up and I shoot up in the bed and I'm like, oh my gosh, this is me. This is my time. Like, I'm the protector of my home. So I go in our closet and, and uh, we live in this like six bedroom, or six bedroom, 600 uh, square foot apartment, two bedroom. It's like this small little thing. And I grab my putter out of my golf clubs, and I start going through the house, and I, and I just think back to every Mission Impossible movie or James Bond we've ever seen, right? So I'm like behind the, the doorway, right? Like just ready. Like I'm so like, I'm like, I, I don't know what's about to go down. And so I, so I clear the house, right? And, and there's no one in there. And, and I go back in, and I'm like, Jen, no, no one's here. And she's like, okay. And she goes back to sleep. I'm like, whoa. I'm like, whoa. What was that? You can't just tell me someone's in our house. Like, she was so sure of herself. And the next morning, I'm like, I'm like, hey, that was pretty crazy last night. And she's like, what? I'm like, what, like you, you thought someone's in our house. She's like, what are you talking about? And, she, and I realized in that moment that the conflict was not someone was in our house. The conflict is I married a sleep talker. <laughs> True story. And how I handled that conflict from that moment forward has become radically different. It's true. I mean, this happens to this day where she literally, she's like, she'll like, and she just shoots up like, like zero to 60 in bed. And she's like, are all the doors locked? And now rather than being like, I don't know, let me get my golf club again. Now I'm just like, yeah, yeah, honey. She's like, okay. She just goes back to sleep because I've become aware through familiarity that really what the conflict is presenting itself. And what's interesting is, I think a lot of times when it comes to our own spirituality, we all have an idea of what the conflict is. But sometimes the conflict we think we're facing is rooted in something totally different. Maybe when we think we're about to face an intruder, you're just facing a sleep-talking spouse. And so today I was reading, I was looking through an article in the New York Times uh, had this headline and said this, sexual harassment, carbon levels, election interference, football concussions, toxic workplaces, death tolls, cooperative or corporate, I'm sorry, corporate cover-ups. And then the next, the next line says like, we'll, we'll find the truth. New York Times is advertisement for the New York Times. And here the New York Times, one of the most prolific magazines and journalism are, uh, magazines that our time has, is telling you we'll find out the truth, but it never tells you where that conflict came from. And this is what scripture does an excellent job is that no other reading will ever give you, is the why. Why is our planet and our worlds and our neighborhoods and our marriages and our workplaces undergoing so much conflict? And when we look back through scriptures, we really have, there's really three reasons that scripture tells us why conflict exists, whatever your conflict is, right? The first one that we understand is that creation, since the fall, creation is now compromised. That's number one. And you can read about it in Romans chapter 8, verses 22, that there's something in our world that's broken. Uh, Isaac Newton uh, coined this in a really scientific way, the second law of thermodynamics, the law of entropy. Everything is breaking down. There's something just in our world that's wrong. 
right? Whether it's natural disasters or whether it's sickness and cancer, whether it's famine, there's, there's something in our own biology that is broken, that the world around us is fractured. And that's, that's one of the reasons why there's conflict. The second reason there's conflict is there is a very real enemy that that serpent didn't just go away. And that even after Jesus, Paul refers to him as the prince of the power of the air in Ephesians chapter 2. So there is a real broken world. There is a very real enemy. But the one that probably gets the least amount of credit, but yet probably causes the most amount of conflict, is our own broken humanity. I mean, if we really look at it, if we really trace back what is wrong with our world, these headlines that I just read from the New York Times... So much of it is a, is a combination of these three things, but so much of it is us. There is something broken in us. And again, if you're with me, you're like, wow, this sounds kind of depressing. Please stick with me because if we can't understand what's broken inside of us, we can't understand the kind of healing that we need. And so what we're going to be doing is I would love to kind of define what I believe is what the conflict is, what Scripture, not what I think, what I believe Scripture points to is what is the conflict. And then I'm also going to say what is the hope in the midst of conflict. So this is what I believe is the conflict, that humanity has been severed from the place of God's presence. And everything good that is attached to his presence, creation, right relationships, or right spirituality, has now been polluted by sin and selfishness. I'm just going to read that again. Humanity has been severed, has been separated from the place of God's presence, has been separated from the garden. And everything good that is attached to God's good presence, creation, relationship, spirituality, has now been polluted by sin and selfishness, right? And everything, I believe, when it comes to specifically our own brokenness, can be rooted back to that moment. But here's the hope. That even though we are now removed from the garden, we are not necessarily removed from this God who pursues us. And throughout the whole Old Testament, we see God vowing himself to humanity and providing a way back to himself through something. And if you're taking notes, this is really important. And it's going to be a little heady tonight, and I apologize in advance if, if you just you know, want something short and sweet. But he promises his redemption through something called covenant relationships. Now, when we chose sin, we removed ourselves from that relationship, but God comes in and makes himself a way into that. But the interesting thing about covenant is that there are terms to every single covenant. Let me give you an example. So when Jen and I got married, we said what on our wedding day? Vows, right? We vowed to each other the terms of our covenant. I'm never going to leave you, right, or forsake you for better, for worse, for richer, or for poorer, in sickness and in health, to be faithful only to her. Those are the terms of our covenant relationship. And in the same way, when we broke relationship with God, God comes back and promises himself to again, but he gives us covenant relationships and he gives us terms. If you do these things, we will have right relationship together. If those things are broken, our relationships now is, our our relationship now is broken. And a lot of times we, and this is where we, people start getting to think, well, God's just into like rules. Like I don't do this. God's into like not having any fun at all. This is all the Old Testament is. And there are rules. There's 613 of them uh, in the Old Testament. But can I tell you that Old Testament is not rules. it's, It's a story. 
It's a story of covenant relationship. And yes, there are terms. There are things that God says, this will keep us in right relationship. But I will never say, I never look at Jen and be like, man, I can't believe we had to vow those things. Ugh. We have such a better relationship if we do whatever we wanted, whenever we wanted. No, it actually robs the beauty of my faithful marriage to my wife. It's the terms themselves that create the safety and beauty of our relationship. And this is exactly what God does. God gives us a gift by presenting himself again, even though we rejected it. And he says, I'm going to give you another chance. Here are my terms. It's, it's, it's a wedding vow. And this is what the, the Ten Commandments, the word in Hebrew is actually not commandments, it's ten words. The Hebrew word is just words. These are ten words. These are the terms. And so this is kind of where we find ourselves. So this is what we're going to do. I'm not going to take more than five minutes. So if you guys can stick with me, we are going to go, we're going to have an overview of the Old Testament. Okay? You ready? If you're taking notes, you can. I think it's actually on the screen right here if you just want to just take a picture with your phone. Um, This is a gross oversimplification of the Old Testament, okay? This is not exhaustive at all. There's no way you could span the entire, like, history of a nation uh, in five minutes. But hopefully this gives us a primer for the kind of relationship that God set forth to bring it back, okay? So you guys tracking with me? So here here we go. Again, uh, the the passages are here if you guys want to look these up. So the first things that happen in the Old Testament is after the garden, things go from bad to worse. And this is, happens mostly on an individual scale. So we see um, Adam have sons who then commit murder, who have, commit more, so who have more sons who commit more murder. And then all of a sudden, it goes down even to where the flood happens and it says every single intent of the human heart was bent on evil. Think about that. There was not one desire in man's heart other than evil. And so things were getting bad to worse on an individual level. And so then God, in in Genesis 12, shifts the story from focusing on individuals, and he starts to craft for himself his own people, a nation that would eventually become Israel. But it starts with one man named Abram, who you probably know as Abraham. So the nation, um, so God begins to create a people for himself, Uh, And out of Abraham uh, becomes this nation of Israel. But before we dive into the creation of this nation of Israel, something radical happens that is one of the most bizarre passages of Scripture, and we'll completely miss it. But back then, it would have made a lot more sense. I just want to read this to you. And so this is in Genesis chapter 15. This is when God is now creating for himself a people through someone named Abraham or Abram. And Genesis 15 says this, when the sun had set and darkness had fallen, a smoking firepot with blazing with a blazing torch appeared and passed between the pieces. On that day the Lord made a covenant with Abraham and said, "To your descendants I give this land." Now what's happening right here is something incredibly bizarre in our kind of 21st century mindset. But what's happening here is God is striking a contract with Abram. And he does this in a very primal, ancient way where he takes an animal and they cut it in half from head to tail. They lay it open. 
And what would happen in ancient contracts is that the person who owes the other person, let's say like I owe you, you know, you lent me um, some grain and I owe you that grain. Well, we're going to enter into covenant. We'd split open this animal and then the person who owes the person would walk through it as a symbol to say, if I don't pay you back your grain, this is what will happen to me. Dragon? What happens in this vision that Abraham is happening as he's promising Abraham that he will become a great nation is that is there's this contract, this animal splits open. But the interesting about this, and we have to get this, Abraham, the father of this nation, is not the one who walks through the split animal. It is this imagery of a smoking firepot and a blazing torch, which is represented, every single scholar would agree, represents the presence of God. So God is promising himself to Abraham, I'm going to make a people out of you that's going to bless the whole world, but I'm not going to put you on the line for it. I'm going to put me on the line for it. And this is huge because we're about to watch this nation fall on his face again and again and again, but what's happening is that he does not only hold them responsible, he actually holds himself responsible. I'm not going to give up on you because I remember this covenant I made with you. I remember the terms, and the terms are on me. So he promises Abraham this land, and, the, and so they, but before they get into the land, these people go into Egypt, and so the, the nation of Israel is really birthed under the oppressive rule of Egypt. And they go from a few families to Tens and tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of people. They become a nation 400 years under Israel or under Egyptian rule. Well, under this rule, as they get bigger, Egypt gets more scared. They get more oppressive. And so what they do is they start saying, you know what? Let's make sure, let's just tighten up the grip. Let's make sure things get worse for them. And so the people of God begin to start crying out to him saying, remember us. And God sends them a rescuer and a deliverer named Moses. Now, this is the most heroic, patriarchal figure in Israel's history. Moses shows up on the scene, and we begin to see God demonstrate massive power over the oppressors. And so this strong nation of Egypt now is underneath the thumb of this God, under this nobody nation, is now rescued and redeemed out into the wilderness. And this is where God really begins to start establishing his relationship with his new community, his new people. It's the first time we see God give rules, not just do's and don'ts, but he teaches them this is how to be a nation uh, civilly. This is how to operate religiously and spiritually. This is how you are to conduct yourselves relationally. He literally, and this is what's amazing. I mean, if you, even if you're not a Christian, read the Old Testament. It is the blueprint for a nation. It's powerful. God, Yahweh, shows up and he's building this very weak, kind of nobody, nomadic people. And he says, you're my people and I'm going to be your God. I've promised myself to you. But this is where things get a little, little fishy, right? You're like, wow, this is amazing. But as soon as they leave Egypt, God's people begin to doubt and complain about why God even rescued them in the first place. And so they complain about water, they complain about food, and God gives them water, and he gives them manna, and then they want meat, right? I totally identify with that. And so he gives them quail, right? He, he, he literally starts showing up on them, but this 
pattern of complaining and doubting takes place over the next hundreds of years. So one of the things we come up to is the people look around them. Nations, Israel's growing. They've now moved into the promised land. They've become a people. And they're looking around. They're like, everyone else around us has kings. Why don't we have a king? And the answer is God's like, I wanted to be your king. Did you know like King David, King Solomon, do you know that I believe it was never God's best intent for Israel to even have a king? Because he wanted to be their king. He wanted them to be a nation of priests. And we, we can even read about this if you guys ever have time. You know, go to 1 Samuel 8, verses 49, and you see Samuel brokenhearted that they're requesting a king. But he grants them that, just the same way he granted them water and manna and quail. You want a king? Here's your king. And so here's God doing everything for them, and they're doing nothing for him, but he continues to give them what they want in their doubting, in their complaining. He's like, here, I'm going to give this to you. And this is what happens next. As they begin to start having kings, of, and, and David really is kind of the pinnacle of Israel's history under the Davidic kingdom. But even David is filled with affairs and murder and scandal. It's not pretty. And it just gets worse. And so what happens is David's son Solomon begins to start taking wives for himself. And those wives are not just because he likes women, but he's trying to gain power. But as he's inviting these women and these other nations in, they begin to start, and this is huge, diluting and polluting the covenant that God gave them. They're worshiping other gods or inviting other ways of, uh, of, of other idols that have come into place. And all of a sudden, we're watching God's people just decay more and more, and, and God is still in it. He's, he hasn't abandoned them, even though there's terms. But things get worse. There begins to be civil war and the nation split. Israel's to the north, Judah's to the south. Israel's the first one to go. They get captured by the Assyrian army and eventually to Babylon. And then Judah's after them. And, and, it's, and it's in those moments where the people go from just diluting and polluting God's will and they just start literally rebelling against God. And this is where the Old Testament ends. The Jewish Bible ends with God's people in exile under another oppressive regime. But it doesn't just end in a sad story. It ends, and this is really huge if you're taking notes, it ends with prophetic hope. It will not always be this way. And so this is, this is what I want you to, to grab a hold of tonight. And this is just a summary, right? So God's covenant people respond to his liberating activity in their life by doubting and complaining, diluting and polluting the terms of the covenant, and disregarding and rebelling against God. Uh, Stephen Furtick, who's a, a pastor on the East Coast, says this, sometimes it's easier to get Israel out of Egypt than it is to get Egypt out of Israel. And that's essentially the story of Israel. I mean, they, they, they've been freed, but they still operate under these ways. And it's funny, it all goes back to they have a hard time trusting God. It's the same thing Adam and Eve did. And so this is where they are, but this is where we're going to start, we're going to give Israel a break, and let's just start looking at us a little bit, okay? If you if you're writing this down, this is what you need to know. We are Israel. 
before we walk out of here, we're like, man, I can't believe the nation of Israel really struggled. Whew. Thank God we are so much better. Israel is a case study of the human condition. It's all of us. And let me remember, we need to know this. We need to understand the conflict because if we're not aware of it, we have no need or desire for the rescue and redemption that we find out later comes through Jesus. But this is what's crazy, is that even in our doubt, in our complaining, even when we dilute the words of God or we add to the words of God, even when we outright rebel against him, what we see in Israel's story and what we find out in our own story is God doesn't go anywhere. He's still there. He promised himself to this people and he promised himself to us. And so if you're here today, you, you're not, you don't follow Jesus. You don't even know why you're in this place. You don't know why you're listening to this message. And you're like, I'm far away from God as possible. Can I just say God is not far from you? There's nothing you could do. No amount of rebellion, no amount of complaining, no amount of doubt that could ever make you go farther away from this God who's radically pursuing you. One of my favorite stories in the Old Testament that illustrates this perfectly comes at the very end of the Old Testament. Right? This is when Israel is at its lowest and God does something radical. If you have your Bible, turn to Hosea chapter 3. Hosea maybe was given the worst task ever given. If you want to talk about like God called me to do something hard, listen to Hosea's calling. Read the first three chapters. So God shows up, Hosea is a prophet, and he says, Hosea, I would like for you to go and marry a prostitute. And on top of that, her name is Gomer. I mean, like, it just goes from bad to worse, right? Like, this is, and so, and this is not abnormal, right? We, we see Jesus asking people to do these kind of images to depict something that's going on spiritually. So here's Hosea, this prophet, and he appears to him and says, Hosea, go take for yourself, the exact words are, go take for yourself a wife of whoredom. Can you imagine that call? Really? And then he says, and go and have kids. And Hosea does it. So he goes and finds this woman, purchases her, brings her to himself, and begins to have children with her. And, and it names three of the children. And the children have awful names, like no mercy and things like this. And these children are pictures of who Israel has turned out to become. And so Hosea, for the sake of telling a story, is living a nightmare. I mean, think about the premarital counseling that would have gone on for Hosea and Gomer. Uh, let's talk about some of your past issues here. And so they have children together, and you can just imagine Hosea being like, this is not what I signed up for when I decided to be a prophet of God. But here he is, and he's married Hosea, and he's taken, or Hosea's married Gomer, he's taken her into his house, and they have children together, but then things go from bad to worse. I want you to imagine this. After the unbelievable mercy and grace and forgiveness Hosea showed to Gomer, Gomer decides to go back into prostitution. Leaves her children, leaves her husband, 
And I know this is a story, but can you, like, I, what I've been trying to do this week is inserting myself in the story. Man, what would that be like? For my wife to leave her children and to leave me and to go back into the thing. And thank God my wife is perfect. She doesn't even sin. I don't have to worry about that. But, but, the, but I'm like, could, if, we, if we can imagine himself going. And then this, and so God speaks to Hosea. Can you imagine? Hosea is probably like, well, I knew this was coming. I knew that if I married a prostitute, you just go back to it. I shouldn't have done it. It probably wasn't even God. And now I'm st- I have these children I have to raise on my own. And she's not even here. She's off sleeping with some other guy on the streets of some city that I don't even know where she is. And God speaks to Hosea and says this. The Lord said to me, go show your love to your wife again. Though she is loved by another man and is an adulteress, love her as the Lord loves the Israelites. Though they turn to other gods and though and love the sacred raisin cakes, those are the worst, aren't they? Those sacred raisin cakes. Listen to this. This is Hosea talking. So I bought her for fifteen shekels of silver and about a homer and a lethek of barley. And then I told her, you are to live with me many days. You must not be a prostitute or be intimate with any man, and I will behave the same way toward you. So here's Hosea, brokenhearted that his wife has abandoned him and his children, and God shows up to him and says, go find her. What do you mean go find her? She left us. What do you mean I have to go find her? Go find her and love her again. The same way I love Israel again and again and again. No matter how many times they prostitute themselves to other gods and other nations, I want them back. So go get your wife back. And then Hosea goes and he doesn't just, it's not like, it's not like rest, it's not taken, it's not like a rescue. He's like breaks down the door. like, you're coming with me. He goes and buys her again. He's spending more of his own money that he probably didn't have a lot of as a prophet and he gives everything he has so he can get his adulterous, cheating wife back home and he looks at her and says, you're coming home with me and I want you to stop giving yourself to other men and I will not give myself to other women. You're mine. Live with me. And God says, this is me to Israel. I was reading that last night in my living room. It's late at night, and I'm literally like weeping. My God, that just doesn't make any sense to me. You gave us terms, and we broke those terms. And you still come back again and again and again. And my friends, don't get me wrong. It doesn't mean that there's not consequences. It doesn't mean that the sin that we sow does not reap in death and destruction in our lives. But what it does mean is there's nothing that you could do. Please hear me. Nothing you could do that could ever make you outrun the love of God. And what I love about this, this is before Jesus even shows up on the scene. 
He's there. He's been there since the beginning of creation. But here we are. And every one of us sitting in these chairs, if we're honest with ourselves, do this to God all the time. I do it to God all the time, every day. Matter of fact, I'm, I'm probably worse than most of you. I know I am. I choose second best rather than God's best for me. I choose not to love and I choose selfishness. But it's in, please hear me, it is in the vivid reality of conflict that the very powerful love of God comes alive. There's nothing, there's nothing you could have done, will do, are doing right now. There's nothing that someone outside this building is doing, will do, that could ever make them step outside of God's character of pursuit and love. And so the question is, how do we respond to that? How do we respond to that kind of love that does not make sense? One is stop eating sacred raisin cakes, all of you. <laughs> Just kidding. I think the first thing we can do is we become aware of how much we need that kind of God in our lives. Just come aware of your own brokenness. But notice the difference. This is, this is not feel shameful. This is not beat yourself up. This is not make yourself feel small. No, no, no. This, this is become aware of just how human you really are so that you can become aware of just how loving God is. David Benner's an author, and he wrote this book called Surrender to Love, and it's one of the most brutal books I've ever read. It's short. But one of the concepts that he says is, is he quotes St. Augustine when he says, you cannot know God until you know yourself. And I, and I hated that phrase. I'm like, what, what are you talking about? Like, knowing yourself? Like, of course you can know God. He reveals himself through scripture. But the point he's trying to make is this. Until you know just how broken you are, you will never understand how deep God's love is. God is not loving and accepting of your best version of yourself. God is not loving and accepting of Israel's best version of themselves. It is in their prostituting of themselves that he chases them down again. It is when we deliberately say, God, I choose to walk away from you, that he says, I'm coming after you again. And if you're new to church, if you're new to Jesus, this whole idea of God, this is who we will talk about every week. This is who we'll sing about. This is who we live our lives around. Is this God that identifies himself as love itself. This is what I'd like for us to do. I'm going to invite my wonderful mother-in-law to come up here. She's going to play piano. And let's just pray. If you're sweating, it's probably the Holy Spirit just <laughs> anointing you right now. Um,
let's just, let's just take a, a good hard look inside. But before you do, if, if for a minute you start feeling darkness, guilt, shame, then you need, to, you need to stop looking inward and just start looking at the cross. But let's just for a moment, just, let's just realize our own humanity and let's just invite Jesus to come in as the pursuer of our souls and to meet us there. Father, we just ask right now that we would not look at Israel as some history lesson, but Lord, that every one of us would see ourselves as Israel. Lord, every one of us doubt, every one of us complain, every one of us dilute your heart towards us, every one of us pollute by adding things to your heart for us. God, every single one of us willingly rebels and walks away, sometimes daily. But Lord, I ask that right now that what may previously have resulted in shame or guilt, condemnation, Lord, I'm asking right now through the power of your Holy Spirit that you would enter into our most real broken selves, Lord Jesus. Here we are fully exposed before you, Lord, and that tonight would be a moment where we have no more veneer, no more facade, us fully exposed before you and all of our brokenness, all of our humanity, Lord, would be met by the radical love of God. Jesus, I'm asking that there would not be a single soul who is not captivated by this unfathomable love that pursues us in our sin, pursues us in our rebellion, and that says, I want you to come back to me. A matter of fact, I'm gonna purchase you back. And we recognize, Lord Jesus, that that purchase happened on the cross when Jesus died our death. Thank you, Jesus. If, if, while everyone's closing their eyes, if that's you tonight, you've, you've never, you've been running your whole life and you've never been able to just accept the gift that Jesus offers, the gift of salvation. And tonight, you're like, in, 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 in your state right now, you just want to say yes to receiving that love. You want to say yes to following this redemptive God named Jesus. If that's you, with everyone else closing their eyes, would you just look up at me and just make eye contact with me? I just want to, I just want to know that's you. Awesome. Amazing. Amazing. Anyone else? Praise God. There's about four of you who just looked up at me and I'm just overwhelmed because um, I'm so glad that tonight you just get to know you're loved. And that tomorrow when you mess up, you're loved. And next month when you mess up, you're still loved. And following Jesus does not mean you are perfect. It means you're forgiven. Welcome to the family. Father, we rejoice in you tonight. We thank you, give you praise and glory and honor.
Would our lives reflect that of yours? Lord, I pray for the people in our lives who've abandoned us and who've hurt us. I pray that somehow by encountering your love, you would allow us to love them the same way. God, we thank you so much for all you've done. In Jesus' name, amen.